if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm 34. That's what we're going to be reading today, Psalm 34. And then we will go through. Let me read it for us really quickly. Uh, as always, I'm reading in the NASB version. And then also, uh, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, you'll hear me read Yahweh instead, because in the Hebrew, that's what it reads. Um, but Psalm 34. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in Yahweh, and the humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify Yahweh with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought Yahweh, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked at him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer and hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want for any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may, be, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from seeking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. And the face of Yahweh is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, and evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate righteous will be, hate the righteous will be condemned, and Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together quickly and then jump right in. Father, would you help us to open this word up? Um, help us to hear it, and more than hear it, help us to listen, and as you wrote through David, help us to taste and see that it indeed it is good and you are good. Speak out of me and into the hearts of those who are here. Convict all of us that indeed the fear of Yahweh is the greatest thing that we can have. Will you indeed bless us in this time as we dig into your word together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we've been learning this summer that every psalm has a background story to it, right? There's a reason for every psalm being written. And it makes sense because psalm is a, is a book of songs, a book of poetry, a book of prayer. And if you know anything about songs that are written these days, almost every song that you hear, inspiration comes from a specific event or a circumstance in someone's life. If you follow like an artist throughout their life, you'll see that through different stages of their life and through different things happening, good and bad, that the, 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 the songs are written out of it, right? Like you'll hear, uh, like if you're a fan of Justin Bieber, you hear kind of through his catalog the different things that he goes through in life. You'll hear different songs that reflect different events that happen in his life. And last week we saw in uh, Psalm uh, 51 through Pastor Goose that uh, David writes a psalm about the time when he basically has an uh, adulterous affair with Bathsheba, kills her husband, and does all these things, and then he's crying in anguish. And so you read that every psalm comes from a crazy situation or some sort of situation in which the reflections are written. And today's psalm is no different. Let me give you a little bit of background context on how and why David writes this psalm. So right after David defeats Goliath, you know the story with the, you know, the pebbles and stuff. He defeats Goliath and he gets into the king's house and King Saul uh, makes him kind of one of his uh, you know, court people. And so he's playing the harp in uh, King Saul's court as he always does. And one day, for whatever reason, um, the spirit of God departs from King Saul and then an evil spirit takes him over. And while David's playing the harp, King Saul thinks it's a good idea to take the spear that's near him and just literally try to spear him against the wall and just kill him right there. And so he takes the spear and then he's throws it at David and nearly misses and David's like oh shoot 
right? And then so he's like, okay, I gotta get out of here. And then there's a relationship between Jonathan, which is King Saul's son, and all these kind of things. And eventually, in the long run, David realizes, like, yo, I gotta get out of here because this man is after my life. It's not safe for me here. And so he runs. And so David's life is spent running, and then as he's running, right before this psalm, he gets into the court of King Achish. And Achish, he thought, was going to be his uh, ally and his friend, but as he's talking, all of a sudden you'll read in 1 Samuel chapter 21, right, that he realizes that King Achish is not on his side either, that he's in trouble. And so he realized, man, if I stay here in this court, they're going to kill me because I think they're with King Saul. And so what he does is he acts like he's a crazy person. He starts clanging at the door and he starts like scratching and making sounds. And he's like foaming at the mouth and saliva's running down his beard. And then the king's like, yo, you brought another crazy person to my house? Like, get, out, get him out of here. And so he miraculously escapes a near life, uh, life-threatening situation. And then out of that, he writes this song. It's a crazy time for David. He's literally running for his life, and he's having to do crazy and, you know, stupid and miraculous things just to escape with his life. Now, knowing this, you would think that if you were in a situation kind of like this, imagine the craziest and and most stressful and anxiety-ridden situation you've ever been in. If you were to write a song or a poem or whatever or a note or whatever that you would do, if you write a TBH, you would probably write something with angst, and you write something with confusion and pain and hurt, Right? Feelings of desperation and, and, and feeling deserted and lonely and all these things. And if you listen to as many songs as there are out there, you'll realize that lots of songs reflect emotions like this, just brokenness and pain and all these things. But we read the psalm just now, and this psalm doesn't quite sound that way, does it? Again, read verses 1 through 3 with me. He says, I will bless Yahweh at all times. Praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make boast to Yahweh. And then verse 3, he says, magnify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt his name together. That doesn't sound like someone who's confused or desperate or in cry. And look at verse 8 through 10 with me real quick. He says, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the person who takes refuge in God. Fear Yahweh because those who fear him have no want. Those who seek Yahweh, he says, do not seek or desire anything. And in verse 11, he says, come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. David doesn't sound like a person who's on the run. David doesn't sound like someone who's in desperation for their life. David doesn't sound like a person who's literally encountering people who want to kill him all the time. So the question then is, how come? Because if you live life long enough, I think you'll find that you'll be in situations like this. Or maybe the world will turn against you, or your friends will turn against you, or you think everything in your life is going wrong and you just want to go hide in a corner or whatever it is that you want to do. How is it that David writes like this? And to be clear, this isn't some postmodern, like positive mumbo jumbo, glasses half full, find a silver lining type of thing. It's not this, if you find and think positive, if you find the silver lining that you can get through it kind of a thing, because newsflash, none of that kind of positivity actually works. This is David, as genuine as he can be, that even though his life is literally as crazy as it's ever been, tumultuous, he is being completely and utterly sincere when he says, I will praise Yahweh at all times, or better, at every time, the Hebrew says. And I think this is a critical question for all of us, regardless of what stage of life you're in. Because the accepted method in the world of dealing with sorrow, there's a couple of them, but I think the most common one, the most common accepted way of dealing with tragedy, sorrow, and craziness is something like this. Deflect the issue on somebody else. It'll help you make, make yourself feel better. 
Stop thinking about it, number two, which is impossible because how can you not think about crazy things that are happening in your life? But anyways, and then once you've deflected it and stopped thinking about it, think positively on something else that's going on in your life. Find the silver lining in it because it will teach you a lesson because eventually time will heal all wounds. And again, newsflash, none of that stuff actually works. I've tried it. Others have, and it just doesn't work. Because even if you, the issues in your life seem like they disappear, at some point or another, they will rear its ugly head, and you feel like you're right back in the thick of things. So again, we ask, David, what's the catch? How is it that you write these words when literally you're on the run for your life? And the answer, I think he writes in verses 8 through 10, and it's this. Taste and see that the fear of the Lord is the key to life. Taste and see that the fear of the Lord is the key to life. That if you taste and see more and more the fear of Yahweh, no matter the situation, at all times or at every time, as David writes, that you will desire to bless God and call others to magnify his name together. And TBH, for being honest, I think this is what the world needs, isn't it? We live in a crazy time right now. Isn't this what the world needs? More than ever? That we need to know and understand that no matter the time, no matter the situation, no matter what may be going on in our lives, that we can desire to live a life of blessing and glorifying God and therefore blessing and glorifying others. I think if the church could do this somehow, the world would change in an instant. So here's the action plan, because I think we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to understand how David writes this, and indeed how we might be able to live our lives like this, because no matter who you are, you will go through some crazy and crappy times, and being able to write and feel and live the way that David does in this psalm, I think, is a critical thing we need in our lifetime. So here's the action plan. First. First, we've got to understand, what in the world is the fear of the Lord? How in the world is fearing God a good thing? Because it doesn't seem like it. Sorry if it's really tiny and you can't see it. Secondly, what does it mean to taste and see God? Like, what does that even mean? It sounds cool, but I don't really know what that means. And then third, how do I taste and see the fear of the Lord? How do I put all this together? So let's kind of go through these one by one. The first, the fear of the Lord. This phrase, the fear of the Lord, is a common phrase used all throughout the Bible. It's actually used more than 300 times. And the most famous is the one you hear in Proverbs where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which probably confuses everybody just like it confuses me. Now, interestingly, this fear of the Lord phrase isn't just found in the Old Testament, but Jesus used it as well. And his most famous one, I think, is this. He says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body, for they cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That sounds like a threat coming out of the mouth of Jesus. But, again, if you read it, it's just it's like confusing. Like, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? And it's confusing because, let's be honest, fear is a negative thing, isn't it? Nobody ever wants to be afraid. Nobody ever wants to be fearful. Nobody ever wants to be feared. Or maybe if you do... But, you know, maybe on the basketball court you do. But other times you really don't. Fear is not a positive emotion. And it makes sense because fear is associated with what? Anxiety, stress, worry. And the opposite of fears always seem to be a good thing. Trust, faith, ease, and peace, right? 
So many, when they hear things like this in the Bible, when they realize, well, you know, I've had a lot of people will come to me and be like, Pastor, guess what I read in Matthew? Jesus says this and it doesn't even make sense. They'll say the Bible is confusing because even in 1 John, or John, uh, 1 John 4, 18, it says, perfect love expels fear. We read it earlier. David says here in the beginning of the psalm, he says, God has delivered me from all my fear. So I had one time someone asked me, Pastor, how is it that, we can, how is it that we're supposed to fear God when his love expels fear? Like that's an that's a oxymoron. That's a conundrum. That doesn't make any sense. How is it? That his love will expel fear from my life, and yet I am supposed to fear him. How is it that when I fear him, he delivers me from my fear? Like, that the thing doesn't actually logically make sense. Now, one way you can explain it is that the word that David uses when he says, God delivers me from my fear, is different from the word that he uses to say, fear the Lord. The first one has connotations of, like, terror and anxiety and horror. And the second one is more honor, awe, and reverence and things like that. But the second fear the Lord word, fear, still has notes of, like, being afraid and and being intimidating and things like that. So it doesn't actually explain away everything. And let me be clear. Fearing the Lord in the Bible is absolutely an amazing thing. It's not a bad thing ever in the Bible. Fearing God is always good and blessed thing. So again, we ask how in the world and what in the world is going on fear of the Lord? A little lesson from parenting. One of the things that my wife has struggled with in parenting our kids always is this question that many other people struggle with and the parents in here may struggle with it too. She's always asked, how is it that I discipline my children and not have them hate me in the long run? Like, how is it that I maybe spank my kids or yell at them or discipline them and not have them hate me in the long run? And it's a common issue that a lot of parents go through. And my, my wife has struggled with this for a long time, and I think she's uh, starting to understand it. But most people kind of, kind of deal with the issue in two ways. They'll say, no, you know what? I'm not going to discipline my kids at all. I want them to like me. I want them to be my friend. I want to be their best friend in the long run. So you know what? I'm not going to discipline them. The other way, which is what my dad does, is he says, I don't need him to like me. I'm his dad. I'm not his friend. He's just going to heap all he needs to do is respect me. So they go the opposite way and just go like total discipline all day long. Now, I think both miss the mark. Now, fear is an interesting thing. Think about it. Think about the things that you fear. Fear at its core, I think, is a thing that causes you to listen or obey or follow the source of the fear, whoever or whatever is causing the fear. Because not following that thing is bad news, isn't it? Now, I think oftentimes when we think about fear in this way, we'll obviously say that fear is a bad thing. But is it? Because I don't think fear is a bad thing just in its whole. Because fear is only a bad thing depending on one very critical element, the desired goal of the thing or the person who's causing the fear. Now, if you're confused, let me explain it this way. Most things that cause fear or most people that cause fear use it to get the people to do the things that aren't good for them so that they can selfishly gain from whatever the behavior is. This is how sex trafficking works, I hope you know. Pimps will get young girls or young guys, threaten to kill them or threaten to ruin their life and say, if you don't follow me, then I'm going to kill you. And then out of the fear, the young girls and the guys will go and then do whatever the pimps want them to do. And in the end, the fear-causing agent, which is the pimp, only wants selfish gain, which is to make money and use this girl or guy to indeed make money for him. This is also how wars and interrogation works. If you ever watch the TV shows, if you, get, if you grab an enemy from the other side and you interrogate him, that's what you do. If you don't give me my answers, I will kill you. It's a fear tactic. 
So they drive you to do things out of the fear that they cause. And you know in the the heart of yours that indeed that what they want from you is one, not good, and two, only for their benefit. But what if fear was different? What if fear didn't actually cause you to do something bad to yourself and also wasn't for your only their benefit was different? Because for God, fear is different. Now get this. If we fear the Lord and we listen to him and follow him and live the way he wants us to live, the end result is only good for you and I and also good for him. The fear of the Lord that causes us to follow him benefits us and him totally and completely. It only results in the good for us and the world. It it benefits everybody. It's called shalom. The fear of the Lord is the chief thing that gets us to stop acting selfishly, acting in ways that harm others, acting in ways that are harmful to ourselves. The fear of God leads us to live lives that are righteous, loving, kind, caring, and gracious. And without the fear of the God or fear of the Lord, along with the reverence and awe and honor that we have of him, we simply will not follow God or abide by his ways. And the end result when you don't live the way that God wants you to is hurt and pain and loneliness and the rest. Now let's dig a little deeper. Because some of you are probably thinking, okay, pastor, like, good explanation. They're talking really fast, and so, you know, maybe we're trying to just kind of blow on by us. But why does loving God and following have to require fear? Can't we just love him because we love him? Like, isn't that what he really wants? Now, let me tell you of the story in Mark 4, and you know the story, right? Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, right? And Jesus is sleeping. He's passed out um, in the front of the boat, right? And then they go through, and then all of a sudden, there's this crazy storm, the craziest storm they've ever seen in their entire life. And they're fearful for their uh, life, and they're like, oh, my God, we're going to die, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. And then they see Jesus chilling, passing out on the front of the boat. So they get really upset, and they go, Jesus, wake up. Like, what are you doing? We're about to die here, and you're sleeping. Do something about this. Right? They're so panicky and anxious that they're going to die that they forcefully wake Jesus up. And then Jesus gets up, cool as the other side of the pillow. He goes, why are you so afraid? And then he looks at the storm and he goes, shut up, sit down, and then the dead quiet. And then do you remember his reaction for those of you who know the story? They look at each other and they go, and, sorry, modern translation, they go, who in the is this? Did my mic go out? Oops, sorry. After Jesus tells the storm to shut up and sit down, the reaction isn't like, oh my goodness, thank you, Jesus, you saved our lives. They look at him and they go, yo, who the f- are you? And the scripture says they are more terrified of him than of the storm that almost just killed him a second ago. Now, why are the disciples terrified? It's because at that moment, I think they realized That Jesus is way more powerful, way more unpredictable, way more crazy and therefore scary than the craziest and scariest storm that they had ever witnessed. And then they realize in that moment, as we all need to realize at one moment, that the world or failure or death or whatever it is that you think is the greatest fear is actually not the ultimate threat to your life. God is that threat. And then we have a tendency to use God as some sort of like pacifying agent, right? Like here's my greatest fear and here's God the superhero. And if I put God against his, super, against his fear, then God will defeat him and make my life indeed great. But this is problematic thinking if we're being honest. Because one, 
it means that God is just only as good to, to take out your fear. He's on the equal level plane with the fear, which is not true because God is way more powerful. And then two, it misunderstands the greatness of who God is. See, if you read the Bible, one thing you'll find clear, and the Bible repeats this again and again and again, is that the Bible will view God and the Bible's understanding of God is that he is far scarier than anything you will encounter in this world because he is the uncontrollable power. He is the unpredictable force. He is the one where you go, who in the world are you? But there's good news in this. As the disciples realized, the person who is greater than the greatest fear they've ever had in their life is the person that not only is more powerful and uncontrollable and unpredictable than the storm, but this person is the person that loves them more than they could have ever imagined anyone could possibly love them. They realize that the greatest power in the world and the force is a force that loves them. And we realize that the greatest power and force in the world is a force that loves us. See, God is only a threat to my own ego and my own arrogance, both of which push me to live lives apart from him. If you remember the Genesis series, that's what the entire thing was about, our ego and our arrogance, thinking that we can live apart from God and actually do it well. And crazy enough, though God despises and cannot stand our sin, he then judges the sin, but in his love for us, he forgives us by taking on the sin on the cross and dying for us that we don't have to. Theologian put it like this, and I think it's brilliant. He says this. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the love of Christ is the completion of it. You can ask my wife. My kids, for whatever reason, like me better than they like her. They'd rather play with me. They'd rather spend time with me. When they're hurting, their first words is appa and not oma. Everyone thinks this is really weird. But I think it's because they know, and they, don't, they know that I love them, but they have no idea what I'm capable of. Like I'm this thing that could do crazy things to them and crazy things at any time. And there's this force that they see in their dad. And part of it is because I'm much taller than my wife and I get it. But more than that is like they realize that when I'm upset, I'm only upset at the fact that they're living life away from the Lord that loves them. A phrase that we always use in the house and that I always use, I always say, I don't know where the loving, kind, gentle, and gracious Mason, Connor, and Kara went. But this selfish, nasty, and sinful one has come, and it needs to disappear. They know that, and they fear me as their dad, because whenever their life slips, I will not stand for it. But they know that I love them more than anything else in this world. And that fear is always a good thing for them. Secondly, then, now that we know a little bit about what the fear of the Lord is, tasting and seeing. Did you notice that this verse is backwards? Actually, David got it wrong in many ways. Because no one ever tastes something before they see it, do they? Think about your five senses, okay? Taste is the most intimate of all your five senses, isn't it? I can see a tree from about 100 feet away, depending on how good your eyes are. But to hear the leaves rustling off the tree, you have to get a little closer, don't you? 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet, 20 feet, whatever. But to smell the sap of the tree, you have to be pretty close, like maybe 10 feet, maybe, right? 
Like, for instance, uh, I was cooking bulgogi all day today. I smell like bulgogi right now. Like, all I smell is Korean barbecue, but you can't smell it. Why? Because you're not close enough. But if I got a little closer to you, Eric, I was sitting next to him earlier, he can smell it. It's like literally like waffling off my skin. To smell it, you need to get a little closer. But to touch the tree, you got to get within like a foot or two, depending on how tall you are and how long your arms are. But to taste the fruit of the tree, that requires zero distance. The most intimate things in your life are the things that you put to your mouth. Because to taste something, you have to erase all separation and you have to put it right here. But the psalm says, taste and then see in that order. Not why. But you all know, they all tell you, tasting is believing in some ways. And you know this. Everything on Insta or YouTube looks amazing, doesn't it? Every picture you see looks amazing, but you won't ever actually know that it's good until you've actually tasted it for yourself. Same thing with Yelp reviews, right? The pictures, the videos that are helpful, but the final test is to actually taste it and see that it's good. Taste is the most intimate experience of something and is the only way you'll truly know that it's good. For instance, take a look at these pictures real quick. Does it look delicious to you? Dude, I want one right now. But did you know that the one on the left, that's not a bun. That's a portobello mushroom on top and the bottom. Who's, the, who's interested in that now? And the one on the right, that's not as juicy as you think that is. That, that, that patty right there is made out of chickpeas and lentils and beets. Mmm. They're all veggie burgers. But from the picture, you might not be able to tell. The only way you actually know that if those veggie burgers are good is if you actually tasted it. Taste is the most intimate of things. It's the only way to truly experience something and know that it is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good to experience it for yourself. That's the only way you will know. See, I can tell you about Jesus' love until I'm blue in the face. But it will not take root until you've experienced it for yourself. Christina said, she hears my sermons and she can take it in, but until she experiences it in real life, it doesn't make sense. I always like to say in our house, the proof is in the pudding. Because it can look like pudding. It can even smell like pudding. But it sure better tastes like pudding, because if it don't, it ain't pudding. Taste and see. But there's something a bit more to taste that I think is interesting. Taste, interestingly, of all of the senses, is the only one that's greatly impacted by the other senses. Did you notice that? Like, for instance, I don't need to smell or feel something to be able to see it. I can just see it. Like, I can see Miss Judy right now, and I don't need to be able to smell or, like, touch, like, her clothes to be able to know that Judy is right there. In the same way, I don't need to smell something to touch it. I can just touch it. I don't have to smell it. Similarly, I don't, need to hear, I don't need to see something in order to be hear it. Actually, if you take away your sense of sight, you can hear better, interestingly enough. But taste? Taste is the only sense that requires all of your senses to actually experience it fully. This is really interesting. They always say you eat with your eyes first. Presentation is super important whenever you have food. For whatever reason, when food is visually appearing, it tastes better. Or if you hear your uh, meal coming out like a fajita plate and it's sizzling, burger, 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 doing this thing, for whatever reason, it tastes better. If you watch a YouTube video and they say, can you hear the crunch? And they'll do the thing where they put their mic right, like, right next to their mouth and be like, <sighs> but apparently the crunch makes it taste better. No, it don't. 
In reality, it doesn't, but it does somehow. Also, if a food smells great, it tastes better. We ate durian while we were in Thailand. It smells like poop, but it tastes good somehow. But if it smelled like amazing, I think it would taste even better. And if you ever had a cold and you can't smell anything, guess what? You can't taste nothing either. And even the texture, the mouthfeel, things taste better when it's crunchy or chewy or like, you know, smooth or whatever. The mouthfeel and the texture of this apparently affects the taste. Taste is the only full sensual experience that helps you to really know and therefore to see that something is good. Because to see in scripture is always to believe. And if you taste it, if you experience it, then you will believe that God is good. When's the last time you tasted that the Lord is good and therefore you saw? Now let's put it all together and we'll wrap up here. The critical question for the day is, how is it that David is able to genuinely express a heart to bless God and sing God's praises even though his life is in turmoil and flux? How is it that David is able to say to others, join me in praising God when literally people are throwing spears at him and wanting to kill him in the very moments that he's in? How is it that he can say, let me teach you to fear God and taste that he is good and have no wants? Well, the answer is found in the sections that we have not talked about so far. Uh, simply put, this psalm is broken into five sections. It'll be on the screen. Verses 1 through 3, 4, 7, 8 through 14, 15 through 18, and 19 through 22. Five sections just like that. In the second and the fourth sections, you will see the reasons why David is able to write this psalm the way that he does. Verses 4 through 7, he says this. In this crazy time, right, he recalls experience and he says, I sought the Lord, he answered me, and then he delivered me from all my fears. He sought, God answered, and God delivered Now, you see this repeated in reference to the poor man. It's him, but he references the poor man. He says, the poor man cried, the Lord heard him, and then saved him from his troubles. What David is saying is this, simply, this is my experience. Our God, your God, my God, our God is the God who hears our cries in times of hurt and pain and goodness and everything. He answers them as he hears them, and then he delivers us. He's saying, do you know this? Have you experienced this? Have you tasted this? And then David backs it up with solid truths that you find in stanza number four. He says, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears are open to their cries, but his face is against the evildoers. And then in verse 17, he says this common thing that you've heard again. The righteous cry, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Why? Because Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saved those who are crushed in spirit, David says. Again, David is saying, have you tasted this? And the only way you taste this is to fear the Lord, to follow him, knowing that he is the power, that he's the way, that his way is the best, which is why he says, let me teach you this fear, O children. And then he gives you practical suggestions. He says, keep your tongue from evil. Stop yourself from speaking deceit. Depart from the evil and instead do good. Seek and then pursue peace. He's saying all these things is the kind of life that God desires, the kind of life that leads to freedom, the kind of life that leads to glory. And the only way you'll live this life, he's saying, is if you fear the Lord and taste and see that he is good. Now, at this point, there's probably a couple of you in here going, okay, pastor, cool, I got you, I'm following. But maybe David experienced this 
deliverance and this hearing from his cries. But I haven't. God doesn't always answer my prayers, and what's up with that? And not even my prayers. God doesn't always answer other people's prayers. What's up with that? How do we know that this is true? And the answer is in the final section. Let's read it together. Well, actually, I'll read it for you. Sorry. Verses 19 through 22. He says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Now, interestingly, let's take a look at John 19. It's on the screen as well. Sorry, it's really small. I'll read it to you. This is right after Jesus is being crucified. He says, But one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen is testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, and not a bone of him shall be broken. That's John quoting Psalm 34 in reference to Jesus to basically say that Jesus is the one who cried, and God heard him, and God delivered him to the point where not a single bone of his broken. And that's why the rest of the psalm goes like this. It says, evil shall slay the wicked. Those who hate righteousness will be condemned. And Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants. None who take refuge in him will be condemned. Jesus, just like David did, and all of us eventually will have to in life, he faced turmoil, pain, and craziness and chaos. And David, just like Jesus did, turned to God But the question is, who do you turn to? They turned to God. They cried out to God, and God heard them and delivered them. David, in the end, became king. David, in the end, did his thing. David, in the end, was the man for whom it is said he's the man after God's own heart. You know Jesus' story. Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. But he rose three days later, just walked right out the grave, and said, death, you ain't got nothing on me. In their times of hurt and pain, they cried out to God, and they, God heard them and delivered them. But we often do not turn to God, do we? We trust in so many other things or so many other people. While David and Jesus feared the Lord continually, honored him and revered him, stood in awe of him, we find that we stand in awe or fear or honor so many other things other than God. And we find that in the end, they can't do a jack thing and we're not delivered ever. God was with David. God was with Jesus. And David says, all those who believe, who seek God in his kingdom those who are righteous in God's eyes, those who fear the Lord and follow God will discover that Yahweh loves us unlike any other and because he is the power more unpredictable than anything you've ever thought of, he will deliver you and bring joy, life, and freedom so that you and I can sing, oh death, where the hell is your sting? Because I don't see it anymore. But only the fear of the Lord will teach you that. And only tasting and seeing that he's good will allow you to declare that. For indeed, evil slayed the wicked. The sin and evil of the righteous and the people who thought they were good, who put Jesus on the cross, crushed death forever. So have you tasted this goodness and this fear and this amazingness of God? That's the question for today. Not just seeing it, not just hearing it, not just touching it, not just smelling it, but tasting it. I'll finish with a story. Christina alluded to it. We were at the homeless shelter in Thailand. 
and I shared my testimony, and I was kind of like in this place of being like, who am I that I get to share testimony to homeless people in Thailand, and they would be blessed. The pastor there was like, thank you so much, Pastor Pete. I've never seen this group be so intentive and focused on anything I've ever said, and I was like, that's insane. So I was kind of in this place, and then I looked at our team, and I said, hey, team, go sit with them. I know they're a little dirty and all these things, but go sit with them. And because my team is amazing and they love me and I don't know, whatever, they went and they sat with them and they were talking to them and kind of touching them and sharing them. That's why Christina shared, there's this old man who said, in 10 months, I've never experienced this kind of love. So we were all done and we're all getting ready to leave. um, And then we're kind of going and then all of a sudden I'm walking. Eric was sitting next to this man and he kind of had a mental thing. Like he was like, you know, he was asking funny questions and Eric sat next to him the whole time. And as I was leaving, all of a sudden, I was just going to go and be like, hey, thank you. And then in, 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 in Thai, you go, Salatikab. Like that's how you say goodbye and hello. So I was just going to say Salatikab and then walk out. And all of a sudden, in the back of my mind, I heard God say to me, give that man a hug. And I said, wait, what? Like this is what my brain is doing. Excuse me? And mind you. I was told before I go in that we shouldn't have too much contact with them because people in Thailand and the homeless in Thailand have issues with HIV, but you can't check it, so you just be careful. Like, thanks for that little bit of info. But God said, give him a hug. And I said, excuse me? Wait, for real? Like, now? But in that moment, God said to me, yes. And then I was like, what? Why? And then he goes, how do I love you? So I reached out my hand. This is me. I'm, I'm like trembling inside, right? I could have just gone in for the full hug, but I did the whole like man hug thing. So I reached out my hand, grabbed his hand, and then I pulled him in. And then when I pulled him in towards my chest, I put my arm around him. And the very next thing is he released his hand off of my hand. And he just went like this, and he just bear hugged me, and he wouldn't let go. Now, I thought I was going to be trembling. Now, he smelled like straight piss. I'm just going to be honest with you. He smelled like urine. He wasn't clean and all these different things. But in that moment, as he was holding me tight, I also 100% did not want to let go until he let go. And in that moment, I had no wants but just to hug him and to love him. Christina shared later, Sarah and I were talking in the front. And we were talking, and in that very moment, I thought to myself, and the thought came, when was the last time this man got a hug from anybody? And that moment, friends, I'm telling you, I will never forget. Because that moment, I tasted the goodness of the Lord in ways that I have not in a long, long time. This taste, one I would not have had had I not feared the Lord, and I followed him, left me completely satisfied, wanting nothing, being loved and giving love. I want to finish with this quote from Tim Keller, and I invite you to just listen and think about this. Because my invitation to you now as the praise team will come up and lead us in in song is to do as the Thailand team did in some point in your life, to take the words that God says here, live them out as he says to, because you fear him, because you know that he's the power, but he's the power that loves you. And then as you do, that you will taste and see that he's good. But let me just read this quote from Tim Keller and then we'll finish. And he says this about the fear of the Lord. 
He says, obviously, to be in the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word has connotations and respect of an awe. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That's the, oh my word, who is this? That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. So fearing God means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. And the question for you, friends, is have you tasted this goodness? And because of the fear of the Lord that strikes you in your heart knowing who he is, will you follow and listen? And I promise that if you follow and listen, you will taste again and again and again and again the goodness of his love that can only be had if you fear and follow and taste. So I invite you as you respond to think when was the last time you felt, you experienced, and you tasted this fear and the goodness of the Lord. And I pray and I hope for you, as I do for the Thailand team and all of you, that indeed every day will be lived trying to get another taste, a bit more of a glimpse of his goodness and his love. And you will find that you'll live life unlike any other, a life that declares that I will praise Yahweh even when people are trying to kill me. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you. We praise you that you are God and that you are good. Help us to love you. Help us to know you. Help us to see you. Help us to taste you. Help us to fear you because that's how wisdom begins, but your love is the thing that completes it in our hearts. So remind us, help us to remember, as Christina told us earlier, of your great love, of your amazing grace, of your beauty. And in doing so, may we live our lives following you. All this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us as we respond. In